This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. Hey, welcome to Art of Darkness, the podcast about the dark side of creativity. We've got a very cool, very special darkroom episode for you. Uh, this is going to be great. We had a lot of response to the subject that we're going to talk about further today. The, the great playwright, one of us, one of us, Sarah Kane. And I'm joined, of course, as always, with my partner in crime, uh, the, the bald man with a beanie himself. It's cold <laughs> here. Kelly. It's cold here. Yeah, it's cold. Have, it's not it, summer yet. We're in Michigan. No, it's not. Oh, Michigan, Minnesota. And then, of course, we're also yeah. joined, and we're very uh, glad to have on the great playwright, Caridad Svitch. Caridad is joining us from New York City. Uh, she's an Obie Award-winning uh, playwright, songwriter and lyricist, translator and editor. And Caridad is here to share her insights and feelings and thinking about Sarah Kane. Caridad, welcome to The Dark Room. How are you? I am well. Nice to be with you, Kevin and Brad, and whoever's listening out there in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Brilliant. Well, so we did the Sarah Kane episode how a couple of months ago, and yeah. it was an interesting one because I find um, – how to, how to begin this – there's a quality of doing these profiles where you really immerse yourself into the, the life and the work of these creative people. And uh, the corner of the universe that Sarah Kane inhabited is not the easiest place to visit <laughs> necessarily. Is that fair to say, Karen? I think that's more than fair to say. <laughs> Certainly mm -hmm. not, not, a, not a terrain that... Uh, even uh, theatrical, I mean, theatrically, incredibly exciting, uh, but depending on tolerance levels, I think, especially with the early work. But, um, but yeah, I think, but confrontational and provocative and, um, uh, you know, the kind of work that, that wants the audience uh, to sit with and encounter the uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think they, I don't know how much she identified with this, but it's sort of this in-your-face movement of British theater, uh, where the audience is not necessarily even meant to be entertained. Uh, you are <laughs> you confrontational, I think, is the mm -hmm. word. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, go on, Brett. Oh, well, I was just going to say after the that episode, I got to thinking, and it was kind of I kind of wondered what the sort of artistic lineages from the punk scene to Sarah Kane, because I feel like it's there. I don't know enough personally the history of punk or the theater, honestly. Uh, carried out, I, I'm, a, I'm a novelist. I come from sort of that side of the, the academy, if you will. Um, so, so theater, while I'm interested in it, I am certainly have very little expertise. 
Um, but I, I feel like there's got to be a, a lineage between, say, the Sex Pistols and Sarah Kane. There's a way of talking about these things where they both make sense somewhat. But maybe, I, maybe I'm way off base. Uh, maybe. I mean, you know, I'll say that she was a big fan of Joy Division. So I think okay. that yeah. that might be a closer connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes there's allusions to some of the lyrics in her plays. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, wink, like for her as a writer, wink, wink, you know, to yeah. some of the stuff that she loved. But um, I think she's closer to um, the classical Greek dramatist. She's closer to Euripides and Sophocles and Aeschylus than, than she is actually to the contemporary. Um, I think that the In Your Face uh, monikers, um, you know, which I think was initially attached to her work, um, is not is one that I think even Alex Sears, you know, who wrote that book of In Your Face Theater, um, has has said that he kind of has rethought that in recent years. That he actually feels like initially it seemed like she was part of a not a not an official movement. You know what I mean? Like uh, it wasn't like they all got together and said this is what we do. This is a, this is a label or a category that got applied to a kind of work that was happening in the nineties in the Britain um, in new writing. Uh, and Alex Sears was writing his book and he was trying to figure out a way to, to sort of, what title his book? <laughs> what do I call this thing that I'm seeing? And uh, yeah. as critics do, right? Like when Martin Eslin, famous critic, uh, coined uh, absurdism, right? He was kind of trying to figure out what am I looking at? What do I call it? Um, and the label stuck. And what I, what I will say is that I think that actually... Um, if outside of a particular uh, resonances with some of the writers who were peers at the time, I think her work is actually quite singular. And and the more the time passes um, in looking at sort of the works that were coming out of the 90s in Britain at the time, the less that she seems part of that group <laughs> and more kind of, you know, marching to the beat of her own drummer as a writer. And, um, and actually, yeah, I will say very much an anomaly um, and perhaps I think misunderstood in that regard uh, in terms of what she was up to. Um, but she was, a, she was like a, you know, a, a very, um, you know, for somebody that was, shall we say, positioned as a contrarian in the theater world. Um, she actually just loved, loved, you know, Shakespeare and loved <laughs> Edward mm. Bond and loved Pinter. And like, you know, she was like a theater animal. So, so I think that, um, and her work is, is deeply embedded uh, in theater history um, and very consciously so. Um, in, in that sense, I would say, especially with the first two plays, there's a kind of very conscious, um, what I would call, um, not student writer, but, um, you know, young writer going, I read all these books and now I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, put some of the stuff that I love in there. You know, I, you feel that kind of energy in the writing and, a, and, and super conscious about what she was doing. So in terms of how she was appropriating and sampling and um, unofficially sampling uh, work. Uh, so, so yeah, I think she's she's actually closer to to some of the canonical people than um, than might be expected at initial mm-hmm. viewing. Yeah, I think we see that. Like that makes a lot of sense to me. I think we see that with a lot of artists who are 
thought of as sort of iconoclastic or sort of breaking all the rules and you dig into them and you find out that they are like steeped in the in the in the tradition in the in whatever whether that's music or film or whatever um and and the way the reason that they're able to to sort of break that boundary is because they understand exactly what they're doing right right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and they're so ahead of things that it looks like it's naive Mm -hmm. because they're creating something new out of this cauldron of stuff that they've uh, thrown in, right? A little bit of this, a yeah. little bit of that. Yeah. 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 Really fascinating. And of course she did study drama. She went to university for it. That was her background. She didn't come out of left field. Right. Yeah. No, no, she studied drama. Uh, you know, she was an actor. She directed, <laughs> uh, she even directed professionally out of school. Um, uh, Bristol and Birmingham, you know, she got her MA at Birmingham. And so, so yeah, and I and I think that you know also coming out of a, I think what what is unusual is that uh, unlike in the United States um, where there's a proliferation of many MFA programs <laughs> devoted to playwriting, um, Britain doesn't actually have that history. So um, the yeah. MA programs there started quite late. Um, so you don't. It, it's a, it's in some ways it's a very unusual culture in that regard around why would you get your master's <laughs> why would you get your master's in playwriting do you yeah, know what i just, mean yeah right mm-hmm. they just go to work yeah just go they right just go place. to work yeah you'll hear you'll hear that from i remember when i was over there people go don't oh, what are you doing why would you do that but i mean of course in america the mfas are where you get a little bit of funding you can escape the the rat race possibly for a couple of years right i think we we all know what that's like um mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I remember distinctly somebody going, nah, save your money and just write. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, just write your plays. Because there's such a, a rich, and especially if you're in London, there's such a rich network of uh, supportive new writing um, programs and theaters, and you can get on the scene pretty pretty easily. Um, yeah, it's pretty, it's a different different animal over there for sure. Yeah. It, it looks like you've spent some time over there, Caridot. It looks like you were you spent a little time at the Royal Court and... Uh, so that's quite quite something. I, I have a very great fondness for that theater, and of course for the upstairs, uh, which is where she, her her horrible, uh, terrible career began. Right <laughs> where she where Blasted where she, began. Yeah, yeah. Where Absolutely. what do they call the the enfant terrible? Right. She went and she yes. she uh, she scared him a bit, didn't she? <laughs> she scared them, but you know they produced. I think the thing the thing that you know, you know, I just keep thinking about the faith that the court had in her work to actually produce it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just think if that play had come through anybody else's desk, if Blast had come through anybody's desk, it would not have gotten done, you know? And the fact that, I mean, a tribute to Mel Kenyon as her agent and also, you know, obviously was pushing really hard. Um, but, and, but I feel like still, even with somebody pushing really hard for your work uh, professionally, you know, it takes a big leap of faith, you know, unknown writer, um, an incredibly difficult play, <laughs> incredibly even difficult play. To, even to stage. I mean, even yeah. just from a production standpoint, let alone Absolutely. the material and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Formally yeah. difficult, uh, uh, theatrically difficult, you know, difficult to pull off in terms of the practicalities of it, mm-hmm. uh, trying to envision how you make that happen. Um and then the audience, you know, so, and then what's its relationship to the audience going to be? I mean, all those considerations that come into the act of producing a new work. Um, so, the, you know, kudos to them for, for taking the leap. Um, 
perhaps knowing, you know, one can't, you can't read people's minds, but uh, perhaps knowing somewhere is like, oh, what are we, right. <laughs> how is this going to go over? Do you know? Like, you just don't know. And I think that, you know, they'd been doing uh, some fairly, uh, uh, you know, adventurous programming. They've always been known for that. But, but I think Blasted still falls a little bit outside of, especially the second half of the play, falls pretty much outside of what, of what, that they were known for it. But it is the theater that it saved, you know, Edward Bond saved um, many years before. And so I think that there is the kind of imprimatur at the court of, um, not that all of their work <laughs> is of this, of this timbre, but I think that, the, that it has a kind of, they're known for like sticking their necks out a little bit. Uh, and so I, I think it, in terms of the history of that venue, um, while an unusual choice, uh, I think not not so much in terms of its um, longer trajectory in terms of, you know, what they're known for. Look back in anger and saved in other sure. plays. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And that play famously walked some people, too, which uh, the, the story goes, it was a very intense uh, move to escape that little space. You had to really make a point of exiting, <laughs> which uh, I, I think is just fascinating. Yeah. Some of the best uh, work uh, I, I've ever seen in the theater was done up in that little, that little space. So uh, pretty cool to know that happened. Uh, Caridad, where did you first become aware of, of Sarah Kane? How did she come across your um, radar? Yeah. How did she first come across my radar? I think that there was um so it's sort of funny. I was at the Mark Taper Forum Theater in Los Angeles. I was a resident playwright there for a little while and uh, in California. And, um, you know, the wonderful playwright Kelly Stewart, uh, who was uh, affiliated with the Taper at the time, uh, kept mentioning this play Blasted. <laughs> and... Um, there, you know, it hadn't had a U.S. You know, it took forever to have a proper major U.S. production. So, the play sort of existed in the U.S. as a kind of play that people just read, right? You know, so it's like playwrights would mention it, or you'd read about it, or you'd read the reviews, you knew about it in the industry, but literally you couldn't see it. So, so it's like people handing the play, buy the play. Let me share the PDF with you. I mean, literally like that, you know, a very under, sort of underground life that this play had. So uh, the play sort of landed in my lap in that manner of like Kelly going, you have to read Blasted. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, and I was, I had just been at the court um, a little bit before, um, maybe 90, oh God, oh, it might've been 94, somewhere around yeah, 94 yeah. at the court. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and and so I was like, oh, right, you know, the, the venue <laughs> that I recognize and people that I recognize. And I'm friends with Mark Ravenhill and um, a lot of the people that were contemporaries. And so, so you know, there's an awareness uh, of the writing. Then I read the play and then I was like, oh, my God, who is this? <laughs> it's yeah. amazing, right? You know, just kind of struck by it and you know, disturbed by it and like wondering how, how do you pull this off? Like I just became obsessed with looking at like production photos uh, of this show because I, I couldn't, I was trying to wrap my brain around how you uh, literally physically pull off some of the images. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And so, and then after that, you know, it just became a matter of just keeping up and reading. And I have a, at that time I was on the editorial team of contemporary theater view um, for Dan Rebellato, who 
who edited the back pages section. So I was sort of on his team, um, and and now I'm actually the editor of that section. Um, and so it's a it's a UK journal uh, published by Rutledge, and so um, uh, and it's part of its mission is to kind of document um, new work and new trends in the arts uh, and theater. Uh, and so, you know, part of my job is actually to know, <laughs> to know what's going on uh, wearing that hat. Uh, and so, and I just, you know, I just kept my ear to the ground. I knew Alex Sears who, who wrote the In Your Face Theater book. So I think he was working on the book at the time that I was in discussions with him. And, and obviously her name was coming up a lot. And then um, I went, a couple years after I went to Payne's Plow, um, to work and where she was a resident. So, right, so right. she had just, she had just done Crave, um, at Payne's Plow when I got there. So, um, yeah. And I met her and, you know, she was very nice and, um, you know, it was like a sort of magical and mischievous day. And, um, and, you know, there was a kind of, I knew Mel who was her agent, you know, so I think that there's just a lot of people, in connection, and then I also knew a director that was working with her uh, on the play that was to become 448 uh, very early in the process. So before it, it kind of something else happened with that project, but uh, when it was just kind of like an idea. Uh, so so yeah, I think that you know sort of like a presence, you know, mm -hmm. kind of like in in my writing life, and and also amongst you know a group of us, uh, David Gregg, who's a friend who then wrote the introduction to her collected work, you know, so it's like, we sort of all know each other. So, yeah. um, and then I was working on a project. Um, I went back to the UK to work on my play, If It's Crash Land Falls, um, with Actors Touring Company uh, to workshop it there, right, right after um, uh, she passed away. So, uh, and that, and the director that was attached to my project, was the one that had been kind of sort of embroiled in working with her on 448. And kind of, I felt like I was walking into this space where everyone was grieving. Like I literally, like literally like a month after uh, she passed, I sort of was walking into this workshop experience with people that were, had all been sort of somehow connected mm -hmm. to her. So, um, so yeah, so it's like a very um, charged um, environment to be in. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I came a little later uh, to to my time there. It was the following decade where I spent some time, and still, uh, you know, I lived near the the Maudsley where she passed away, and then I spent quite a lot of time at the court, and there was still that presence. It was still discussed, and it was still hushed. Kind of, well, this was this happened, and I got an education very quickly. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, that sounds like it must have been very intense. Um, was it was it discussed openly, or was it more just sort of in, lurking in the background? Um, you know, the the director that I was working with was very close to her, and there was just a lot of there was. I mean, these things happen when somebody passes. You know, there's a lot of a contentiousness around ownership around the material and you know who does this project belong to who was working on it first you know a lot of that stuff was going on um mm -hmm. very unpleasant to be honest um 
And also, I was just trying to work on my show, you know, <laughs> the right, right. trying to work on my <laughs> yeah. show, you know, which was, you know, that play is a, if Jenna Crash on Falls is about sacrifice. And, you know, so, um, so th- it felt, I think, a, a little bit um, uh, a, a kind of extra haunted in a way uh, mm. to be working on a piece that's about sacrifice, uh, sacrificial women. Um, with collaborators that were openly grieving uh, and that did talk about it, but, but not in a way that was, I think was, I don't think was disrespectful, Um, but just kind of like destroy, you know, people were destroyed and angry and, you know, I mean like things that happen when somebody, um, you know, was taken from them in a way. And so it's, uh, you know, those feelings of could I have done something, you know, like all that stuff that happens, right. You know, um, yeah, so just a lot of, just a tremendous amount of anger and sadness and rage, and also the fact that she was an extraordinary artist, so I think it's also like, oh my gosh, we just so lost, young. like, one of the best, yeah, so young, and we lost, like, one of, like, the greatest writer of our generation, you know what I mean? So it's like, ah, <laughs> there will be no more plays, do you know what I mean? Like, that, mm-hmm. that part of it, too, is, is, um, so it's not just the immediate sadness, um, and grief and rage and you know all those attendant yeah. feelings that that accompany this, but also the art itself that you feel is sort of vanished in a way. It hasn't vanished. I mean, there's the plays that are left uh, and the short film, but um, you know, there's always that that feeling of like sometimes I'll look at the collected book and I'll be like, there'll be no more plays. You know, That's it. we'll never know. Do you know what I mean? We'll never know. Yeah. <laughs> we'll yeah. never yeah. know what the next plays were going to be. And I feel like mm. the strange thing about that is that her work was starting to go in a very different direction. So from between Crave and 448, things are starting to really atomize and split and become much more, um, there's a kind of spatial geography that she's dealing with that gets opened up in the writing. Um, And I was like, oh my gosh, now what? Right, you know, there's this feeling of like, where was it going to go next, you know? And we'll never know, you know, we'll never know. Yeah. Well, what a gift to, to have the to have the work that we have, especially given her age, how young she yeah. was, and how accomplished. And she's one of these um, writers that I think people get into MFA programs or they aspire to get into these programs, uh, like um, like Cormac, where everybody is trying to write this way, and yeah. you simply cannot fake the funk. Uh, and, and so you'll, you'll get these, you know, young playwrights and suddenly somebody, somebody's cannibalizing a baby and you go, yeah, you're yeah, just, well. you're not, it's, you know, do you know what I mean? Like there's this, you can sort of go, okay, yeah. I understand your influence. And, but then you look at her work and, and you really do see that there's, there's some, there's a lot more going on. Um, mm-hmm. I remember too, how, you know, reading, uh, you know, about her, how, um, she, she drew these horrific things from, the, the newspaper. Her father was a, a tabloid journalist. I mean, she would, she read uh, these stories. I mean, and she wasn't making a lot of this stuff up. She was pulling from the, the horrors of what was happening. It, it reminds me of Roberta Bolaño, who we, who we just did. Uh, similar um, period, different generation of writers, but kind of doing their thing right there in the middle of the nineties and just staring at the, the horror of uh, the late 20th century and that sort of millenarian anxiety that everybody had, the millennia is ending. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now that I think about it, the, um, the, the degree of comfort 
and certainty and confidence that the so-called West had at the time, right? The wall had fallen, capitalism had won. We're all super comfortable here in Sloan Square in Tony, Kensington and Chelsea, right? Life is good. Uh, the internet's, do you know? Right. Yeah. And, and so this The internet's crop- going to solve all our problems. <laughs> We're going <laughs> to- Right, right. <laughs> And history is it, right? And yeah, so, yeah. and meanwhile, there's the the war in Yugoslavia, and mm. and she's looking at this and going, "Wait a minute, we're kind of taking our eye off the ball." Much like Bologna with two six six six, where it's yeah. like, yeah. you know, so everything looks really good when you just ignore all the bad stuff, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that was her Caridad. Was that not her her kind of thing about how she she kind of resented a lot of the, cl- the way the, the classics were staged and even written in the sense that like the the most extreme business would would happen off stage, hmm. and she even said like, "No, let's <laughs> let's, let's see it. it. Yeah. Ah, let's yeah. show it. Let's show it. Let's sort of. I mean, that's part of that disruptive." tendency right of like you know oh you know Shakespeare said let's see some of it the Greeks said let's not see it let's see all of it you know what I mean I think it's also this notion of like um I sometimes think about I don't think that's true of like she she didn't write about this like in her interviews like you know there's this collection of the book that Graham Saunders did that has like extensive quotes from interviews that she did um she never talks about this but I I sometimes think about like the relationship between her work and let's say you know horror films and mm-hmm. the films that sort of explore body horror for example um and that there is a psychological and philosophical area that her work lives in that is about like body versus machine, machine bodies, how those things, how, what are we becoming, you know, and this notion of like honoring, I think what's fascinating is that there's sort of an honoring of the flesh, an honoring of like the corporeal um, uh, against uh, the feeling that the corporeal is being subsumed uh, by capitalism, by kind of like a, a plastic world, right? You know, so that, so that I think that the presence of the body and, and, and the extremities, especially in the earlier work that are being staged, uh, are kind of a reminder to the audience. You know, we are like fleshy beings. We are animal. You know, we are animal. We are kind of moving through the earth. Uh, and let's not, for, we're not disposable to one another. In fact, I think her work is always about against the disposable, against the disposable of the human um, and a desire for for recognition and, and um, you know, uh, beauty. I think there is beauty, you know, in the work. And so theatrical, you you can't imagine film versions of these in the, in any sense. It has to be theater. Uh, you can film it. You could maybe try to adapt it to film, but you would lose so much. Um, and that's that body, uh, the politics of the body, the people in the theater is all there. Yeah, for sure. The people in the room with the other mm. people in the room <laughs> witnessing yeah. each other. Yeah. I mean, it's important, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's nothing That's... filmic and there's nothing filmic about the work. In fact, it's very, sometimes like, cause I, I know what you mean about like uh, student writers sort of doing their Sarah Kane, you know, they're, they're kind of where they're like, I'm going to do my Sarah Kane play. And it's like, yeah. And, but they sort of treat it like film. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, and then this happens and, you know, we see the, the limbs flying or whatever. And it's like, 
No, it's it's actually a poetic, you know, it's a poetic image. She was a poet, so I think that um, you have to understand what the poetry of the body is doing, what the poetics of a space is doing in the writing, uh, and that the stage directions are both stage directions, like these are things that need to be done, uh, actions, right, that need to be executed on stage, but also that they're uh, poetic moments uh, that... Yeah. That are that are part of the score of the text. Yeah, and moving you from these visions, one vision to another vision, with dialogue that's maybe jarring, uh, sex that's jarring, these sort of high intensity moments, uh, and then these these also these beautiful moments. The which is the play where the flowers grow through the the floor? Is that and cleansed? Cleansed, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, just beautiful. Mm. And dark. <laughs> beautiful dark. Beautiful very dark. of a very of a time in the nineties. Would you say that she influenced um, you know, your writing or your work? Oh, that's sort of fascinating. I mean, it's hard when you're like a contemporary. You know, I think that um I certainly think that, you know, maybe if I hadn't Yeah, I wonder if I hadn't met like all those folks like in London at that time, you know, in that in that sort of time period, like if my writing wouldn't have would have gone in the direction that it went. I think that like around after sort of like around ninety five, ninety six, my writing started to kind of go like my earlier writing before that was uh, was kind of a, interested in brutality anyway, sort of brutality and. Why do people, why are people cruel to one another? Like, this is a continual question of like, you know, um, where does cruelty come from? And, and what an accident, what are environments that sort of um, enforce that, you know, make humans, especially around cl issues of uh, class warfare, right? Like what, what sort of allows sort of cruelty to manifest, you know? So that's an ongoing concern of mine. Uh, and, but I think that, you know, stylistically, uh, around 95, 96, the writing started to get stylistically more expressionist. So, and then that coincided with like, you know, I'm at the Traverse and I'm at the Royal Court and I, you know, so, I, you know, so suddenly, and then I'm also seeing like Philip Ridley's work and I'm seeing, you know, <laughs> I'm seeing, you know, sort of work um, that is, that is very, you know, provocative and is is confrontational and is and i was like oh you can do that like it was also like permission mm -hmm. i was like oh okay cool like cool like you can do that in the theater and maybe because i hadn't really i've never really seen still to this day um i'm waiting uh <laughs> seeing like a very good um like a you know an exceptional production of an ancient Greek play, for example. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just haven't yeah. seen it yet. Like, I've seen some very good, like, worthy ones, but I've, like, not one that sort of puts me in that place, like, oh, yes, you're supposed to feel pity and fear. And I was like, I haven't felt that yet. <laughs> so, mm. so I think that for me, it was sort of like the beginning of kind of apprehending the fact that it's possible as a contemporary to approach some of this that's very old, that's very primal in the, in the theater world. Um, and, you, and that it still has uh, authority. Uh, and so, yeah, and so, so I think, yes, in terms of my own work, 
it was like just opening their door to to have permission to to move in that terrain. And then I went through. I wrote like about there's about ten years of my writing life where I'm I'm writing these incredibly dark plays, um, <laughs> and kind of pushing and pushing and pushing until I got to the edge of that for myself as a writer. And I was like, you know, where am I going with like this? This is like a like I'm I'm happy to to kind of keep playing in this realm, but I also felt like I'd sort of hit a wall, you know, after about, you know, I sort of, I call them like between 2000 and yeah, maybe 2010, you know, so yeah, 10 years of yeah. writing, you know, where I, where I just was like, I just went to the mat, you know, and then I was like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> like, that's it. <laughs> moving on and moving on. Yeah. But I also know it's in my toolbox, you know, so I feel like that as a writer, it is a well that I can draw upon and I'm grateful to, um, you know, the many, I think art is a conversation, right? So the conversations that I have, um, and imagined conversations that I have with writers that are no longer with us, but their work is, um, as well as writers that are still with us, that those are ongoing conversations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, the, go ahead. After you, Brad, I've talked. Well, I was just, you know, I, I'm very interested in, Carrie in your work, you're talking about 10 years to kind of walk yourself to the edge of darkness, if that's not not putting words in your mouth. Um, I, I find that really interesting that, like, uh, I, I don't necessarily, even though this is art of darkness, I don't necessarily seek out work that is dark, but I do know that if an artist doesn't have black in their palette, um, there there's going to be something missing there right it does feel like terrain that a any artist is going to have to traverse and understand to some extent um and and sarah kane maybe showed the maybe showed showed the way in a certain sense theatrically um yeah that's very that's very interesting also re-showed the way like we like yeah. reminded i think it's like you know mm -hmm. art is a reminder of the past right so mm -hmm. it's like remember you can do these remember you know and it's like yeah. oh remember francis bacon remember goya you remember right. you know like there's right. these art there's art has always had uh visual art uh, you know um especially uh, you know has has walked these lines before right so i think that i think the thing about theater is that it, because it's literally in front of you um it does carry a different charge viscerally for an audience and i think that um like it's i'm always fascinated by this because of course in film i mean so many things have been staged right so many things have been represented um and i think audiences you know it's either their cup of tea or it isn't but in theater something that an audience member in film would be like oh right i've just seen this image <laughs> Right. And then they'll watch the next frame, you know, keep going. Like in theater, they kind of, an audience would be like, I don't stop. Don't show me that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it's something that might be even mild, even just sexuality, right? Like it's sort of like, oh, they're getting too close. And oh, it feels, and it's literally, it's because it's bodies where mm -hmm. bodies are witnessing other bodies. And, and it does feel, you know, perhaps invasive or too vulnerable or or that could be me on stage, that feeling of that could be me on stage uh, uh, is heightened in a way that I think because film is a removed medium, it's a distant medium, uh, it doesn't make you feel that in quite the same way. Um, but yeah, but it's, you know, I mean, that thing of like walking through the darkness, I mean, I think, yes, I think that all artists need to, 
it needs to be in your palate somewhere. You need to be able to access it. I, I think that I think my relationship to it has to do with the fact that I was starting to feel like it was defining me as a writer in a way that I was uncomfortable with. By I, I felt like, well, I'm not just that, right, <laughs> you know. Right, right. And also, and also, you like psychologically, you can't live in that space all the time. Oh, that's uh, for sure. As a writer. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's just too hard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to think more about her process and remember what her pro her writing process looked like. Do you do you know much about it, uh, Caridata? I, I can't exactly recall. Um, yeah. Yeah, a lot of a lot of re a lot of reading, a lot of stealing, <laughs> a lot of stealing, <laughs> a lot of magpie. You know, a lot of magpie. Yeah. So like, you know, oh, this moment in Lear, and that moment in Seneca, and that moment in you know, and like taking notes and like seeing. An exhibition and taking notes on that, like a lot of note taking, but also like formally. I mean, there's that famous story of her and David Gregg, you know, because they were roommates in in, in uh, Birmingham, um, of like she was working on Blasted and and they were kind of and she was <laughs> she was saying to him, oh, you know, I wanna I wanna write a play that hasn't been written before. Um, and I want to bust all. I want to bust all the rules. Um, and they would do these games with trying to figure out, like, okay, what what are the things people have done in place? And they list them. And then it was like, okay, no, well, let's not do that one. I won't do that one. I won't do that one. You know, and sort of, sort of this idea of like going through theater history and trying to figure out, like, oh, what will people expect if I have this premise? You know, like a really simple like theater theater writing game, right? Like this is my premise. Okay, what are what are people gonna? What are the five things that people are gonna expect with this premise? And it's like I oh, will do none of them, right? Uh, so there's a very conscious choice around subversion, around expectation, around audiences. Uh, there is a kind of the part of her that was a visionary, like a visionary, like you know she would the visions would appear and then she would write them down. But there's also the part of her that was like super practical and like, mm -hmm. okay, like this is the theater piece and how am I gonna <laughs> maneuver yeah. it? And also like being very, there's a kind of a playfulness in the work of, of sort of like, oh, you think I'm gonna go there? Ha, I'm gonna go over here, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a, I think that all of that is incredibly intentional. Um, and like even with Crave, you know, which it's like, okay, how do I take like, uh, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland and like fragments of the Bible and kind of put them together, <laughs> you know, put them together and literally looking at the wasteland and, and literally sort of writing kind of what I call sort of doing palimpsest writing, kind of writing over the wasteland, um, but very much using that as a model. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of magpie stuff that's happening in her work um, in terms of process, uh, which is, you know, which is exciting in the sense that it's a, um, it doesn't feel like, I think it takes, away, it doesn't take away her genius. I think what it does is it, it kind of makes you realize she really knew her stuff mm -hmm. as a writer and, and she knew how to apply it. And it wasn't like, it wasn't accidental in other words. And I think there's this mythology that's grown around her, her work where it's like she just kind of fell from the mountains and it happened. And it's like, yeah. no, actually she was working really hard. She was a theater maker. And like, it was like, it was like she was trying to figure stuff out in the room and, and um, in a very practical way. Um, and, and also challenging her collaborators, which is yeah. part of one of our jobs as you know, artists. Yeah. Despite her, despite her age, there was still, it was still held true. The old, 
adage of it takes 10 years to make an overnight success or maybe it wasn't exactly 10 years for her but yeah. there there was a, there was a process yeah she didn't she didn't quite come come out of nowhere I, you know i think the, yeah. the the magpie i love that uh, analogy of the magpie and, and you know i think we i think all writers and artists do that to some extent and i think I think that's that that's tradition almost, right? That's that's part part of what the craft is, and I think if you can do it deliberately and carefully, and and uh, maybe it's weird to say respectfully. I'm not even sure exactly what that means, but but um, you know, uh, yeah, I think I think to to do it willfully and not trying to cover your tracks. Um, and you're, you're she's she's placing herself in conversation with all of this stuff rather than just stealing it because she can't come up with an idea right um and i think i think that's i think that's brilliant and i think that's that's what that's what we're all doing hopefully we you know we all do it anywhere near as well as she did she's yeah. of the school though that says she's maybe not even a writer necessarily right mm. she's a playwright and that mm. that comes through in the text that you that we have you mm -hmm. know we talk about this it's not meant to be literary really mm -hmm. it's not literature uh the the scripts are blueprints um mm -hmm. so that's always been a tricky thing that i deal with too it's like am i really a like a writer i guess i mean you are we work with words is what we have but then you bring them into the the theater and <laughs> or to a workshop carried on smiling yeah right so it's yeah. so, such an interesting um thing well i i want us to talk a little more about uh your time in uh london caridad and uh maybe we'll try to dig in i think maybe into a few more specifics about the the individual plays in the after dark episode that we're going to do for the patreon subscribers we do uh, an extra 20 or 30 minutes every episode we do and that is at patreon.com slash art of dark pod we are at art of dark pod.com and then on twitter which brand brad runs we got over a thousand followers now finally yeah hey. pump those numbers oh. send those numbers brad. <laughs> yep, yep. uh and that's great and we love every one of you uh even even the trolls i'm kidding i don't think we have any trolls yet we brad, don't have so. very many trolls no but we've had try people harder. give us very nice Nice constructive feedback. Yeah, but yes, they are gonna they are gonna push us to do multi part episodes, yeah. uh, no matter what. And I'm not gonna yeah. get my way, and that is yeah. fine. But we love hearing from people, and uh, we have the Telegram channel too. Uh, it's a little smaller, but if you really want to engage with us, we're there. Uh, that's all linked through the website. Brad, you've also been growing the YouTube uh, channel. Yeah, um, yeah, we're, we've got. Yes. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So everything's on YouTube. We're starting to do YouTube clips now too. So just like four or five minute little bits from. Um, uh, our longer episodes. Uh, so if you're you're not sure you want to listen to three and a half hours uh, on Robert R Roberto Bolaño, which you should, um, you know there might be a clip out there that'll that'll give you a, a little taste. Yeah, if you're not ready for four hours of Bolaño between the main episode <laughs> and the after dark, you can just get a nugget of it. I don't know what happened. That was crazy. It was great. Uh, it was great. We had to we, have, we have to. we had to do the work, Kevin. Yes, we're yeah. yes we're doing the work. Uh, and and Caridad, where can people find you? I, I, you're on Twitter. You're on the Bird website. Elon's Journal, as I call it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm on the Bird. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on. I'm just on Twitter. I, I also am on Instagram, but I barely interact on Instagram, and and I'm no longer I, I i guess i still am somewhere on on facebook but i don't really interact very much anymore yeah that, that's all right well i i'm gonna make sure we have a link to your to your mm -hmm. twitter uh is the it twitter's fine yeah yeah uh, it's actually uh at c switch 
Okay. So cool. See, easy. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Super well, easy. and yeah. And, and, you know, this is all about uh, Kane and her work, but you mentioned you're working on a play too. So what, what are you, what are you working on now? Let's uh, hear about that. If you care to. Oh share. my heavens. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sort of all sorts of things, you know, because of a uh, pandemic land, um, a lot of things, you know, I've been, I've been grateful that I've been, that a lot of been making a lot of stuff. Um, and, and, you know, things have been getting out there, but uh, there's a couple of projects that, were supposed to have premiered in 2020 that are now coming back. So, so I'm in rehearsals with uh, an adaptation of Eva Luna, which is a novel by Isabel Allende that I adapted. Um, and so uh, we open, um, I don't know when this will air, but at the top of June, uh, okay. <laughs> might, we might be open by then. Oh, uh, no, no, this, is, this is literally going to air tonight. So, <laughs> oh, heavens, okay. Yes, yeah. yeah, we work fast. So, yep. in, in, where is it again, did you say? What's yeah, it at Repertorio Espanol in New York City, okay. uh, Spanish Repertory Theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so we're in rehearsals now. We open at the top of June, uh, start previews in Memorial Day weekend, uh, Eva Luna. Uh, and then uh, Ushuaia Blue, which is a play. Uh, that was, again, supposed to have premiered in 2020, <laughs> is in pre-production uh, at Contemporary American Theater Festival uh, in West Virginia, and that uh, premieres um, uh, early July uh, mm-hmm. at the festival uh, there. And so, and I have an opera of Garcia Lorca's uh, play Bernarda Alba, which I did the libretto for um, at Cleveland Opera Theater also in June. Uh, so all these, all those three things are kind of like all happening all at once right now. Oh, uh, fun. yeah. So like literally all at once. Uh, and then, uh, it's lovely. And they're all, they're all like 20. I feel like I'm reliving 2020. (laughs) Like I'm sort of like in the reliving 2020 mode. Oh my Lord. And, uh, and then, um, yeah. And then I've been working on, um, on a play called Chelsea and Ivanka, which is a is a play about uh, those two people <laughs> and their relationship. Chelsea uh, Johnson and Ivanka Smith. Chelsea Chelsea Clinton. And, oh, and Chelsea oh Trump, Clinton. right? Yeah. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Excellent. Wow! Excellent. I don't even. Very cool. You know what? That's amazing. What's it like to to write an opera? What is that like? The opera is great. It was. It's such a. You know, I've always wanted to. It's a it's a field that I love, and um, but I just never never knew how to like get in there. You know, so a composer like fell in love with my translation of the House of Bernarda Alba, and so called me up, and I was like, "Who are you? I love you." <laughs> uh, and we started working, and you know, it's just been a delightful. You know, it's been they take a long time, obviously, because the score and all of that has to be written, but um, it's been a beautiful process and very uh, stress free. Actually, because it's really sort of all about the music. <laughs> so oh, it's great. Like, all I have to do is kind of, like, make sure it scans properly and, like, oh, c- mm-hmm. cut some words here or move some things around. And, like, you know, but conceptually we're all on the same page about it. And, um, yeah, so it's been a delight. It's just been a delight to kind of uh, see it sort of take shape uh, musically and uh, really instructive in terms of um, – uh, the structure of language and its relationship to sonority. And uh, yeah, so that's been really fun. That's been really, really fun. Yeah. I want really more glad. of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm really more glad that, to hear that it's stress-free because for yeah. some reason in my mind, an opera would just be the most stressful <laughs> kind of, I don't know what it is about the, I it's think about dramatic. the dramatic. It's dramatic yeah, and everything right. is 10 times right. bigger. But I suppose right. if you're focused on the writing, 
it is kind of a corner of the work. And, you know, I think the composer is probably that's yeah, yeah. really on the, the composer. Way. I don't think is stress-free no, no, no. <laughs> at the moment, but, uh, but you know, it's, it, you know, it's all about the score and it's about, you know, it's a new opera. So it's mm. all about like making sure that the music is being served and like the, and the parts are written to their, you know, performers range and like, you know, so it's, it's an, it's an all female ensemble. So it's all these amazing voices and um, harmonies and like, it's just gorgeous. And, you know, so it's a, yeah, I think that the stress-free part of it has to do with the fact that I think that when you're, when you're the playwright in a theater piece and it's a new play, you must know this, Kevin. I mean, it, it just it just feels like everything's on you. Like, yes. it just feels like, you know, it's make or break. Like, if it goes well, everybody gets the praise. If it does not go well, it's all your fault. You know, so... I quite literally had a, a review, a local review to that effect. Everything about this show is great except the script. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh my God. You just, you go, oh my God, then you got to show up the next day, right? And, uh, oh, just terrible. And of course, that's not, but then you learn to read through that and you go, wait a minute, that doesn't even make sense. And, right. yeah. <laughs> so, yes, carry out, I do understand, unfortunately. <laughs> no. Yeah. And so I feel like that the beautiful thing about working on the opera, at least this, at least in this occasion, has been that that uh, that's not the case, you know. That's not the case. And the same has been true of the two films. I have a, I have a. There's a film that got made of my play Fugitive Pieces, which is now called Fugitive Dreams, uh, that's been on the festival circuit for the last two years, and mm. um, and that's like great. Like I like it's there. It is, and right. <laughs> it's doing its thing, right, right. you know. And it's like me, but it's also like me, part of this other like group of people that are making this project and and the second film is uh, based on a play of mine and i wrote the screenplay and um but this time it was an unproduced play of mine so i got to reimagine i got to rethink it but also just hand it over and like you know the filmmakers like down shooting houston and then going off here and there and i'm like awesome send me the rushes you know like (laughs) like there's something there's something fun about the aspect of letting go, which I think for whatever reason, when you're in the nitty gritty of making a play, that's harder to come by. But I, I, I want to learn how to, how to have that experience in making a play, actually. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to kind of bring us home and bring us back around to, to Sarah Kane. And uh, thank you for sharing all that um, yeah. info, info about your rights. I'm glad to know that you're out there and working and that things are picking back up again. We we started a little theater company in town here. We're doing a reading series. The theater company is called Bad Mouth Theater Company, badmouthtc.com. And apparently the chatter is like, like in the local NPR picked picked it up and said something about it, but we don't even know. Like we haven't even heard. (laughs) So we're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. We found this great uh, brewery in town. I got to shout them out. They're called Waldman brewery here. And it's in one of the oldest buildings in St. Paul. And we're doing kind of pub style reading upstairs, you know, stands. We're not mounting a production, but we're doing it. We're doing it. And uh, really a lot of fun. We're also putting content out online. So that's at badmouthtc.com. Uh, so we've got two two plays that are uh, have been recorded and we're going to do three more. And, and I kind of like this thing of, I mean, we want to be in the room, right? But everything is so digital now too. It's like we might as well 
put it down uh, mm-hmm. and, and put it out there online too. So people like Brad can enjoy it. Yeah. And, and you do care it out if you have, yeah. you know, if, yeah, there you go. Um, so that's a lot of fun. We, we also are vaguely thinking about possibly doing Art of Darkness Live one day, uh, yeah. which would be a lot of fun. And we yeah. wanted to maybe do Fitzgerald in we'll St. episode on Fitzgerald. Yeah. How great would that be? Uh, how great would that be? And then, of course, maybe one day Prince, too. I mean, we gotta, but just that's still too soon. It's been years, <laughs> but it's legitimately too soon. Yeah. Um, yeah. But bringing it back around to, to Sarah Kane, um, Caridad, when you introduce students, because I know you teach, to, to her work, do you recommend, hey, go chronologically? Or is there a play that you kind of uh, lean into when you're teaching her? Is there one you focus on? Yeah, I, I taught a whole sem- semester on her work. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that was like a intense. Uh, it was a f- six weeks on Kane and then five weeks on Kim Crouch. So I mm-hmm. kind of, we split them, uh, which I thought was a good, that was sort of my dream course. I had been I've been wanting to do that for years. And so I finally had the opportunity to do that. And I was like, I was like, I put everything into it, you know? Um, and, and when we worked on Kane, I didn't go chronologically. I thought it was important for the, for the students to understand how, how you go from blast it to 448. Like that's not a, an easy path <laughs> and it's not an obvious path. And I think that from a playwriting perspective, it's like, Oh, you start kind of like in a place that feels maybe like Pinter, mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit yeah. like Pinter, yeah. you know, and then it, and a little bit like, you know, Aeschylus and a little bit like Shakespeare. And then you, and then a little bit like Bond. And then you're suddenly moving into territory that's more expressionist and surreal and cleanse. And then you start in a, in a fascinating way. I think that the plays operate through the forms of drama a little bit. So we, we, there's aspects of like, re, you know, tr- realism, tragedy, aspects of melodrama, aspects of, until you start expressionism, surrealism. And finally you got into like, what feels like a little bit like a new world, you to know, once poem. you get to 440, to a poem. Yeah, like yeah. a performed poem, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And, and so, and also this idea of like, moving away from character and thinking about figure and thinking about voice and uh, the voicing of the text on the page. And how is that text, you know, how does that manifest? How do you, how many voices are in 448? You know, do you delineate them? How does that happen? What is the challenge to a performer uh, and a company staging that material? Um, What happens to the idea of the figure? And because so, because so much of her work centers on gender, um, what happens to the gendered selves that, that become almost like, I wouldn't say non-gendered, but they, they start to sort of fall, the, the sort of cages of gender start to slip away from the characters as we move through the plays. And so I think that's also like a cool thing to look at in terms of the writing. Uh, the writing gets more and more spare as it moves forward, it gets more and more atomized. Um, so I thought, I think that, you know, it's actually instructive to look at it chronologically because it is about the development of an artist hmm. um, and, and that she was kind of discovering uh, stuff from play to play. When I taught the semester on her work, a lot of the students knew Crave. So they had just done a production of it at NYU, uh, like in the experimental theater wing. Um, and so, so they all knew Crave. <laughs> And most of them, that's the only play of hers they knew. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. yeah, so they were coming at it, and I was like, well, wait, 
hold on, <laughs> you've got to go back and look at, you know, and so I think that a lot of those students were like, oh, wait, like, cleansed does this on the page like wait a minute that's so different and so and for and i had a lot of students who were either directors or playwrights or actors in the room so uh and we approached it from and also design so we looked at it from all of those angles like what happens when an actor walks into this piece what happens when a designer is trying to so we all did like design presentations mm. for these plays and looked at them um, because the challenges are enormous uh, and you have to make some big, bold choices and actually think about conceptually how the work is landing. Mm. Uh, how do you do the rats, for example, in cleansed? Right, <laughs> uh, right. I don't know. How do you do them? Um, uh, so, you know, all these wonderful <laughs> Under, challenges. Undergrads. Right. Undergrads, <laughs> undergrads, walking around, you know, doing yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> and then we looked at, like, a lot of different, like, images from different productions. And, um, yeah, it's uh, – and I think, I think none of them had seen – yeah, I don't think any, any of the people in my class had seen the Soho Rep production. So – so I was the only one who had seen it. So yeah, so I could talk about it. Yeah. That is such a great thing about theater. You see a production, you then have the the cachet of being the person <laughs> who can then communicate that production. It's such a, a wonderful thing for extroverts. Yeah. Uh, if you're an extroverted <laughs> writer, I strongly recommend going into the theater. I'm speaking for myself. I don't, uh, I don't pretend to know what your what your vibe is, Carolina. Yeah. But having met you, you've 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 been great, and we're very yeah. grateful for your time Absolutely. and your insights. I think what we should do is take this to the to the after dark and talk for another twenty or thirty minutes. What I'd like to do um, is maybe step through the plays chronologically and just hear some of your thoughts. You've shared some already, but I think if we just start with Blasted and then let's just go through and sort of, I, I'd love to hear your your impressions and I'm sure we can do easily do another uh, another half an hour <laughs> that way. You, are you, you happy to come back on in uh, in a few minutes? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Beautiful. Great. Well, we're going we're gonna, to uh, put it into the uh, the Darkroom episode here. This is, this is a Caridad Stitch, CD Stitch on the Bird website. She's got lots of stuff going on. You got to go out, go see live theater, whatever it takes, opera, you name it. Oh, I, I do want to main, uh, you know, close the main episode. We always end with a question. Um, and uh, I think we should do this too for the Darkroom, Brad. I think sure. the question here is, Caridad, if Sarah Kane was alive today, what do you think she would be doing? What do you think she'd still be doing? You should think she's writing plays or would she be writing an opera, film? Mm. Oh, wow. Theater, I think. Theater. Yeah, yeah me too. Theater. <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe, yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, there's tragedy everywhere. I, I think that what's happening both in Yemen and Ukraine right now, you know, is a pretty extreme so you know i think the antenna would be very alert to to those stories and trying to figure out a way to to apprehend them i on stage i love to imagine what she would do though if she got her hands on an opera uh and do you know too and because she was yeah. so interested in form and and breaking the form was just breaking apart so so such an interesting career uh Yes, and thank you again for sharing your insights. We'll come back for the for the uh, after dark and talk further with the great uh, Caridad Stitch. Caridad, thanks again. We'll, thank we'll you talk so much. shortly. Thank you.